please turn with me once again to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. I want to be very candid with you this morning. I was not eager to preach this message from Revelation 9 this morning. I hope you understand why. I'd much rather be preaching about 10,000 times 10,000 in glorious raiment, singing with joy before the throne of our God. But before that happens, there's a whole lot of really messy things to come. As I read through this text, I I wrestled with the text itself. I, I read numerous commentaries, and I found my heart shrinking back at times. The judgments that are described in this chapter as they go forward, they become increasingly intense and increasingly graphic, and they, frankly, they terrify us. It's, it's terrifying beyond our ability to comprehend what is to come. This week when the sh- school shooting took place in Uvalde, Texas, our nation was horrified at such senseless murder, such a wicked attack. Every pundit weighed in on what happened, on why it happened, on what we need to do to make sure it never happens again. But, you know, I never heard anybody say, this is a reminder that we must repent of our sins and turn to Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that God was particularly pouring out wrath on these helpless little children in that, in that school. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm, what I'm saying is that is representative of the carnage and the suffering that we find described in the book of Revelation. It's a tragic reminder that we live in a broken and fallen world, a world full of evil and hatred, of violence, and even murder, a world under the judgment of God and of demonic attack. And the solution is not simply to find better ways to protect ourselves from the mayhem. The solution is not to find ways to protect ourselves from the consequences of the sin of men. The biblical solution is to repent of sins and run to Christ. Now, let's take just a moment and locate ourselves. Where are we in the book of Revelation? If you're new to our study, uh, I want to kind of orient you to how we're approaching this book. I don't believe that Revelation is a sequential timeline of events taking place either throughout church history or in the very last days. Rather, I have accepted, and I think it's very compelling when you study it, uh, interpretive uh, design called progressive parallelism. And that is that Revelation pre- uh, presents seven cycles of judgment, and it's really the same events repeated over and over with greater specificity and greater intensity. It describes for us this cosmic battle that's been taking place throughout history, but that will definitely intensify toward the very end, resulting in eternal judgment and the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his people. And within this framework, we find these seven cycles of judgment, excuse me, three cycles of judgment, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of God's wrath, each one describing the same or similar outpourings of God's judgment with greater intensity and greater ferocity. In chapter 6 and 7, we see the seals, particularly the first four seals as the four horsemen of the apocalypse come out and inflict the world with conquest and murder and famine and pestilence and death itself. 
and at the fifth seals the martyrs under the throne who have been killed by these attacks are crying out, oh, how long, oh God, until you establish justice, until you avenge our blood. And then at the end of the chapter of chapter 6, we find this terrible sixth seal where final judgment falls and men are crying out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to deliver them from the wrath of the Lamb. We come to the seventh seal and, and it's just very brief, pointing us to the glory of heaven and then immediately jumps into the next cycle. The seven trumpets come forth from the throne in the hands of seven angels. And we, we looked at this two weeks ago. I was not here last week, but two weeks ago we looked at the first four trumpets and they described terrible calamities that would fall on creation itself, on the seas, on the land, on the rivers, the sun and the moon and the stars, where one third of each of these would be destroyed. Again, this is symbolic language. But the creation itself is groaning under the curse, and that groaning and that destruction will become more intense. We talked about natural disasters that will cause us to long for the new heaven and the new earth where he makes all things new. And so this morning, we come to chapter 9, and that's the fifth and the sixth trumpets. Now, the description of the first four trumpets in chapter 8 took seven verses. The next two trumpets take an entire chapter, much more detail, much more graphic in its description. And the judgments are introduced at the very end of chapter 8 by an angel, or excuse me, by an eagle. In verse 8, chapter, thir- chapter 8, verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, those who dwell on the earth consistently refers to unbelievers in the book of Revelation. Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. Those who dwell on the earth, or those who are earthbound, are unbelievers. And the angel is crying, or the eagle rather, is crying, woe, judgment upon those who are dwellers of the earth. So let's look, first of all, at this fifth trumpet. The description of what John sees is more frightening and more terrible Because it's more specific. He tells us in verse 1, he saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. Now, this is not a normal star. This is not a meteor. It's not a shooting star of some kind. This star was given the key to the bottomless pit, which means this star is a person. And I'm convinced reading through the rest of the text, it's referring to Satan himself. Remember, the scripture teaches that originally Satan was an angel in heaven. But because of pride and jealousy... He rebelled against God. He led a rebellion, and he was cast out of heaven. And one-third of all the angels followed him in his rebellion and were cast out. So that's, the, that's where Satan and the demonic host come from. If you wonder, where did the demons come from? They were angels originally who rebelled against God. And you would say, well, they were in heaven, and they rebelled against God. How is that possible? And I will tell you, with all of the theological wisdom I can gather, I have no idea. I really don't. Why would an angel in heaven rebel against God. I don't know. But if you remember in John or Luke 10, turn with me to Luke 10 for a moment. Jesus had just sent out the 72. Uh, this is additional to the 12 apostles. These are 72 other followers of Christ. <coughs> they sent them on a, a, a mission trip, as it were, two by two. And he gave them authority to heal diseases and to preach the gospel. 
And in Luke chapter 10, they come back all excited. Verse 17, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, did he see that much earlier? Did he see that while they were out there preaching? We don't know. But I believe that's reflected in what we read in Revelation chapter 9. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and none shall hurt you. And we see that again, that reflected in our text this morning. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Friend, is your name written in heaven? Are you a Christian? Do you have that basis for rejoicing and joy and comfort? Because if you don't, what we're getting ready to look into is terrifying beyond our imagination. It truly is. So, in Revelation 9, Satan has given this key to the shaft to the bottomless pit. Some, some translations say to the abyss, and that's fine. Best understood, what is this bottomless pit? What is this, this abyss? It's the dwelling place. It's the prison, as it were, for those fallen angels, those demons, until the final judgment when they're cast into the lake of fire. In Luke chapter 8, you remember uh, Jesus cast demons out of a, of, a, of a man who was possessed. And he said, what is your name? And the, na- and the demon said, our name is Legion. There were many. And they begged him not to send them back to the abyss where they had been in prison. Uh, and so he sent them into a herd of pigs and they ran quickly into over a cliff and they died. So we find here this, this shaft, this, 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 this bottomless pit, it's locked, but Satan has given the key. Now I want to emphasize here, who gave him that key? God. God is sovereign even over the wicked events of demons. If you remember the book of Job, God allowed Satan. Satan had to get permission to afflict Job. And God turned Satan's affliction of Job into good, not only for Job, but for Job's friends and for his glory. So Satan is always limited by the sovereign power and control of God. And so here God gives Satan the key to do what Satan has in his heart and mind to do. God is not the author of evil, but he limits the evil which he permits the enemy of our souls to carry out. And so however terrible these events are, we must remember at all times God is in control. However terrible the shooting was in Texas this week, we must remember God is in control. However terrible the, 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 the warfare is in the Ukraine and the horrible things being done there and many other parts of the world that don't get coverage, and yet there's oppression and murder and warfare and human trafficking and unspeakable evils, God is still in control. And how do we harmonize that? Well, it's because the, the world we live in is broken and fallen and it's under judgment. And God is, is, is bringing these judgments, bringing these calamities upon men to cause us to see how utterly helpless and defenseless we are without him. And to press us to turn and run to the only hope of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan opens this shaft and terrible things start to happen. Smoke belches up out of the shaft, and the sun and the air are darkened by this, by this smoke. <clears throat> the worst pollution in our world pales in comparison 
to what's being described here. But out of that smoke, uh, this terrible swarm of locusts, locusts emerge. I was talking about this text yesterday with my grief share group, and Cheryl Lund was telling me when she was a girl, her family went through a locust swarm. They could see this cloud of locusts coming in the distance, and they could hear it, and it was frightening. But they went inside, and they closed the doors and closed the windows. And as the locusts came through, they absolutely decimated every speck of vegetation. All the trees, all the leaves, all the plants, all the grass, everything was stripped bare. And she said the noise was overwhelming. It was terrifying. And when that cloud had passed, she walked outside, and she said it was utter desolation. Well... That's what we find described in Exodus chapter 10, isn't it? The eighth plague. The locusts who come through Egypt and bring about such utter devastation. But the the locusts here are different. Verse 3 tells us they are given power like scorpions of the earth. But scorpions don't devour vegetation. Scorpions are carnivorous. They eat other animals. They sting in order to kill their prey. These small animals that they devour. But they can sting people as well. A scorpion sting isn't fatal, but it sure is incredibly painful. And so John is drawing from that. Really, the Lord, in showing him this vision, draws on that, uh, on that, uh, that, that image that we're all familiar with to some extent. If you're from out west, you know you don't put a pair of shoes on without looking inside to make sure there's not a scorpion in there, right? Um, it's interesting to me how many times I, I read in the commentaries, the good commentaries, John chooses to use this imagery from this, you know, he's familiar with. John is seeing visions. It's the Lord who uses that imagery. And John's describing what God shows him. And I kind of want to, you know, shake our commentators and go, come on, guys. But anyhow. But these scorpions, these, these, uh, these locusts that have tails like scorpions, they're, they're acting on specific orders. They're told, don't touch the vegetation. Don't touch the grass or the leaves or the trees or the plants. Well, who told them that? A voice came from the throne of God himself. God, again, is limiting the devastation which he allows to be sent forward. He unleashes the judgment, but he sets the boundaries for what can be accomplished. But these locusts are sent to attack Men, But they're only allowed to attack those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads, those who are not Christians. In Revelation chapter 7, you recall that an angel came and he had the seal of God to put on the foreheads of all of God's people. And we read of uh, the seal being placed on the tribes of Israel, representing figuratively the church, which is the new Israel. And so these locusts are not allowed to touch. Christians with this suffering that they're going to, going to inflict. The saints in this trumpet, woe or, or, or plague, will be protected. But they unleash torment on unbelievers. Uh, and, and there are two limitations the, that are placed on these locusts. One is the attack lasts for five months. Now, some suggest that's because the natural lifespan of a locust is five months. Well, uh, I looked it up and it, it said it was more like ten weeks. So I'm not sure that's really the right reason. Uh, Again, I don't think it's really a literal five months. It doesn't really matter. The point is it's limited in time. We're talking about a temporal judgment, not something going on throughout all of history. But it's symbolic. But they're allowed to torment people, but not kill them. Their stings are like the stings 
of, of, of scorpions in verse 6 tells us it's like a fate worse than death. Back in Revelation chapter 9, they long for death. They seek death. They won't find it. They long to die, but death will flee from them. It's really, in a sense, a fate worse than death. They believe that death would relieve them of their suffering, oblivious to the fact that death would lead them to eternal torment. The purpose of this affliction, of this judgment, is not to hasten their death. It's to compel them to repent. Now, there are some very creative interpreters of the book of Revelation, and I've alluded to this before, who see these locusts as attack helicopters. And it's very interesting. I told you a few weeks ago, I was talking with another pastor about, uh, about those creative interpretations of Revelation. And as I said locusts, he said, yeah, attack helicopters. Uh, it's, it's, it's commonly uh, understood that that's, that idea is out there. Well, I would say to you, it cannot be attack helicopters. And I'll give you four clear reasons from the text why. First of all, they emerge from the bottomless pit. They do not emerge from the arsenals of, hum- of human governments. Secondly, attack helicopters are killing machines. They kill people. They don't simply injure without the power to kill. The locusts aren't allowed to kill anyone. Thirdly, warfare, human warfare, it's indiscriminate. Christians as well as non-Christians are impacted by it. But the locusts are not allowed to touch those who are sealed with the seal of God. And then fourthly, verse 11 tells us their king and their commander is not some human general. It is the Satan himself. And so these are hellish locusts, hellish messengers of God's judgment. There's a fifth that that came to mind later. It's that an attack helicopter doesn't shoot from the tail. It shoots from the front. But uh, again, don't, you know, if, if some of you come up to me afterwards and say, but you know, there were bombers in World War II that had tail gunners, you're missing the point. The point is not to see if you can identify military hardware in this text. The point is to be horrified at the judgment of God being poured out on an unbelieving world. That's the point. And there's this particularly grotesque exp- or description of them in verse 7. It says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Some of the commentators refer to them as centaurs, a horse with a human face and a crown and a woman's hair. But it goes on. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Their noise, uh, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Compared to horses and golden crowns and human faces and women's hair and lion's teeth and iron breastplates, the noise it makes, all of that is beyond our imagination, the sting of scorpions. Now, again, I don't believe we're supposed to take this literally and try to draw a picture of what's described here. It's symbolic. But the point is, it's powerful, it's fearful, it's threatening. It's possible, some, some suggest the human faces indicate wisdom or, or intelligence to deceive men. The hair of a woman's hair uh, uh, indicates attractiveness to seduce the hearts of men. And yet, 
as men are seduced and deceived, they are tormented by their seducer. They are tor- Satan doesn't come to bless those he seduces. He comes to torment them. He hates Christians, but he hates non-Christians too. He hates every creature of the God who made him. He promises fulfillment. He promises satisfaction. He promises all will be well. And what he leaves is brokenness and devastation. And those who follow him will be devastated and they will be disillusioned. They'll long for death, but that, that death will elude them. Hendrickson, in his commentary, says the entire symbolic picture emphasizes this one idea, terror and destruction for that is Satan's work. Terror and destruction. Another commentator, a longer quote, but I think it's helpful. At one point, their torments likened to a scorpion sting, which does not actually kill, but causes such agony and misery, the person longs to be dead. Chronic hardships that bring terrible times, but not utter ruin. Terrible diseases that cripple, but do not kill. Beckoning philosophies that offer the fleeting pleasures of sin, but leave a nasty taste and an aching void. Temptation to ambition and success, which excite people and deliver temporary happiness before leaving them dangled, dissatisfied, and bitter. Casting them into pessimism and despair, leading them up the garden path. These are some of the effects of the contents of the fifth trumpet. What a picture of the most appalling gloom and misery. So that's the fifth trumpet. Woe to those impacted by this. But then we see in verse 12 and following the sixth trumpet. Um, And in verse 12, it says, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. And it just gets worse and worse. Dennis Johnson says here, the sixth trumpet, which is the second woe, is humanity's last warning blast. The trumpet blows, and it's like this is the last warning men will receive. The sixth angel is instructed to release those four angels. Verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Ostensibly, it's the voice of God himself saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Here are these angels who are bound, restrained for a time. Now, you don't find a description of heavenly angels bound in the Scriptures. I believe these are demonic angels, fallen angels, who are, as those in the abyss, are bound. And uh, they are at at the edge of the Euphrates, bound until the Lord releases them to carry out their terrible deeds. They're, how, they're, they're bound, they're held by the very power of God until the moment he's ready to unleash them. And the voice comes and they're released. Again, under the sovereign control of our God. <clears throat> and the picture here, in this case, is global warfare. These angels have been bound by the great river Euphrates and in ancient times, ancient Old Testament times, Euphrates was sort of the, the boundary line for Assyria and Babylon who came down and invaded Israel and Judah. So across the Euphrates is where the bad guys were. For the, for the nation of Rome or the Roman Empire, across the Euphrates is where the Parthian invaders were. So there was this symbolic significance of the Euphrates as it was the boundary where the bad guys were. And here we have these four demonic beings, these four demonic angels bound and held back until God releases them to carry out their global warfare. Now, recognize 
We are not anywhere close to the Euphrates River, okay? I don't believe that all of the action here in the book of Revelation is taking place in the Middle East. I believe it's global. It's worldwide. And the, and the geographical references, again, are symbolic, having highly symbolic significance from what we find in the Scriptures elsewhere. So here we have these angels, and it says that they were prepared for the very hour, the day, the month, and the year, which seems to indicate a very specific event, a plague on all of mankind, which many say, and I think they're probably correct, talks about a, a final conflagration. Maybe it's the war of Armageddon that we find later in the book. There's some mystery surrounding it. But what we do know is this global warfare kills one-third of all mankind on the earth. Now, in the fourth seal, remember the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The fourth seal, one-quarter of the earth is killed. Here, one-third, you see it's getting a, a larger percentage, a greater intensity. We're not taking a census so much as looking at the intensification of the judgment of God. Now, I want you to stop and think for a minute about what is John describing here? I went back and looked at World War II, the, the, the statistics there. How many people were killed in World War II? Well, there were over 400,000 Americans and 400,000 Brits, but that was nothing compared to many other countries. 600,000 French, but 6 million Jews from Eastern Europe. 7 to 8 million Germans. More than 3 million Japanese. Around 20 million in the Soviet Union. Around 10 million Chinese. The carnage in World War II was unspeakable, but it pales in comparison to what we find described here. In our present day, in our present day, there's nearly 8 billion people on the earth. If one-third of our population were to die, that'd be two and two-thirds billion with a B people. I couldn't imagine such carnage, such devastation. But that's exactly what God's Word is telling us is coming and urging people repent while there's yet time and in the in the 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 fifth woe the fifth trumpet it was limited to unbelievers believers were exempt but here believers are not exempt the warfare will break out and no one will be protected from the physical consequences we'll be protected from the spiritual nothing can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus but even like the martyrs under the throne um, believers may well die in these battles as well but this invading army that's described, it, it's vast beyond our imagination. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. That equals 200 million people. 200 million mounted troops. John describes them in verse 17. When he said, this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. It's a fearsome description. Again, we're not supposed to try to draw that, and we're certainly not supposed to try to say, what military machinery does that most resemble? Rather, we're to recognize that there will be a ferocious and terrible worldwide, global impact. We don't have to know where will they come from. I, I've heard people say China has the ability to have 200 million soldiers. They don't have that many. But 
It doesn't matter where they come from. The reality is they're acting on orders from these four demonic angels. They're doing the bidding of Satan himself. And the terrible impact that they will have is global destruction, carnage, and yet limited to one-third. They, they ride these grotesque horses of destruction, not ordinary horses or killing machines. Now, does that mean a tank, a warship? Uh, again, we're running down the wrong road here. Is it global nuclear holocaust? I don't think so. And I'll say why I think that. Because I think what's being described here in Revelation 9 and throughout the rest of Revelation when the judgments are poured out is worse than anything that has ever taken place on this earth. Let that sink in. When they have the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you think of the carnage that was experienced in those two cities in just a moment, what's being described here is worse than that. And if you think about it long enough, it's terrifying. Worse than anything we can imagine. It says here that these three plagues, fire and smoke and sulfur, uh, are poured out upon the world, emerging from the, ho- ho- the mouths of the horses themselves. Dennis Johnson in his commentary says, the trumpet judgments have escalated from one-third destruction of land, sea, and rivers and sky to the physical, mental, and spiritual torture of unbelievers and out of the slaughter of one-third of the human population. And here's the amazing thing in all of this. Please don't miss this. This is utterly, utterly important. Verse 20 and 21 tells us the rest of mankind, speaking of unbelievers, those who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of the sorceries of their sexual immorality, or of their thefts. Jeremiah 17, 9 is true. The, the, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And the heart of man is, des- is, is so wicked that he chooses to suffer torment. He chooses to endure these terrible things that we find here and perish in his sin rather than repent and turn to the Lord as he's invited to do. Now, what we find here, there's a, a clear description of the breaking of the first and the second tables of the Ten Commandments. The idolatries represent having no other God before me, God says in the very first command. The New Testament calls idolatry the worship of demons. Over and over we find in the Old Testament idols, we find, we read, they cannot see or hear or talk. And that's exactly what John writes here in Revelation 9. It's a violation of the very first table of the law, which is the Godward aspect of the law. But then secondly, the second table, which is more the impact on others, murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, and theft. What do we see around us today? Well, we see the murderous invasion in Ukraine taking place by Russia. We see school shootings and mass murders that horrify people, whether it's a school or a grocery store or whatever. But you know, in our country, we have seen the murderous slaughter of over 60 million unborn babies. 
And while we recoil in horror on what's going on in Russia, and we recoil in horror of what took place in Texas and other places of these mass shootings, people are marching in the streets demanding the right to slaughter their babies. And an amazing irony, the president of our country recently referred to abortion as the killing of a child, aborting a child, and saying people have the right to do that. If it's a child and you take its life, that's murder. And the reality is people know that. In their heart of hearts, they know it, but they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. But it's not just murder. Sexual immorality is rampant in our culture, and it's considered normal. Young people, please do not fall for the lie that everyone's doing it, so it must be okay. Because it's a lie. It destroys lives. In Revelation 9, it tells us that God views sexual immorality very, very seriously, and we ought to as well. The entertainment industry portrays sexual immorality and moral relationships as something lovely and beautiful, tender, perfectly normal. Please hear me. God is not pleased, and he is not entertained, and we should not be either. I heard many years ago, if Satan can entertain you, with sin, you'll never hate it. That's true. If he can entertain you with sin, where it's not such a big deal anymore, you won't hate sin. If you can approve it in your entertainment, eventually you can approve it in your own behavior. The world we live in dresses up sin in all manner of appealing garb, and Isaiah cries out, woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But that's exactly what we see going on around us. God has put his law in our hearts. We know what's right and wrong. And there's a solemn warning here to those who reject the word of God. In Romans 2, verse 5, we find this warning again repeated. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's judgment is righteous. It's right. And those who persist in rebelling against him and disobeying his word are storing up wrath that will be poured out upon them. And he will carry that out perfectly, righteously, and I would say ferociously. So these two trumpets, the indication in verse 20 and 21, as they specifically are to serve as warnings to the wicked of this world. Judgment is coming. You need to repent while there is yet time. The miseries inflicted are designed to draw men to run to Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Baptist Catechisms reflect this as well. It asks the question, into what a state did the, did the fall bring mankind? In other words, what was, what's man's condition because he fell into sin? The answer is the fall of man brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. Sin and misery. The enemy tells you that sin will make you happy. And the Bible tells you sin will make you miserable. In fact, it goes on and asks the next question. What is the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? The answer comes, all mankind by their lost, by their fall, lost communion with God. They're under his wrath and curse. They're made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. 
Let me read that again. If this is not enough to make you want to run to Christ, you need to stop and think, why? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. They're under his wrath and curse. They're made liable to all the miseries of this life. And you know those miseries. We all do to some extent. To death itself and the pains of hell forever. It's stunning when we consider the miseries that are described here in Romans or Revelation chapter 9. But what's even more stunning to me is that there will be those on that day who will steadfastly refuse to repent of their sins. Even when they're afflicted with such dreadful miseries. They'll continue on as if these miseries are just a, a, a part of life. They'll continue to pursue their wicked designs and reject the God who made them. They'll try to insulate themselves from the consequence of their sin, but not flee from sin itself. And not flee to the only one who can deliver them from sin and from misery. When I was in the fourth grade, I had a Sunday school teacher, Mr. Gower. He had been in a Japanese prison camp in World War II. And that's where the Lord saved him. And he said, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. And the reality is, many times when people are under great duress, they do cry out to God. We saw that happen on 9-11. People flocked to churches and cried out to the Lord for safety and healing for our country and all the rest. And people were saying, oh, this great revival is breaking out. I was not nearly so optimistic And in fact, men quickly returned to their ways, selfish, sinful, idolatrous. There was no repenting. There might have been crying out, God help us, but there was no repenting of the sin that is the basis of the miseries we endure. Things have gone since then from bad to worse in our country, and they'll continue to do so. Nothing's really going to change until men turn to the Lord or until God pours out his judgment once and for all. So let me ask you, are you one whose citizenship is in heaven or are you one who is a dweller of the earth? Are you one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ because you've repented of your sins and you've asked him to save you and give you a new heart and new life and you're seeking to turn away from going after the pleasures of this world and the idolatries of this world? See, when men cry out, to God under duress, oftentimes they see themselves as victims, not as perpetrators. They don't see that they need to repent of their own sins. And all they see is their victimhood. But if you understand what Scripture teaches, you recognize that what we deserve is far worse than what is experienced in this life. The miseries of this life are nothing compared to what we deserve. And so we run to Christ, and he delivers us. He is our only hope in life, and in death. Now, lest we look at this and we walk away going, this is really, really dark and really, really dreadful. We can lose sight of the theme of Revelation, which is the glorious triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he wins and he shares that victory with his people. So no, no matter what evil, no matter what violence, no matter what tragedies impact the world around us, no matter what is to come, God is on his throne. He is in control. He is determining the boundaries and the limitations of what the enemy is allowed to carry out in this world. And those who have the seal of God, the Holy Spirit, in their lives, we truly have nothing to fear. 
because we are safe in the arms of Jesus. The Heidelberg Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, rather, starts with this question. And with this, I'll end. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What's your only comfort in life and in death? Here it is. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power, excuse me, from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall on my head, no matter what the enemy pours out upon this world. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation, and I would add, and my good. Whereas by his Holy Spirit, he also reassures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Dear friends, this is our Jesus. He is our comfort in life and in death. And he invites you, come now. Don't be like those who, no matter what is poured out on them, they say, no, I will not yield. Turn to Christ. He is your hope. He is your comfort. And he will receive all who come to him.